All right, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, whew, welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is great to see you all this fine Sunday morning. As always, thank you, Dr. Maxi, for sponsoring this series, this uh, this season, this year of Kabbalah and Coffee, in honor of your mom. May her memory indeed be for blessing and uh, shower down good, good things for you and the entire family. So this chapter that we're going or this discourse we have chapter and discourses the discourse that we're about to start today is a very very starts a very interesting conversation it's discourse 17 we have it here in the uh, in the printouts or in the book or we'll pull it up online soon the conversation is about wealth and work or maybe work and wealth which is a very intriguing topic in well, in general, but also within Judaism and Kabbalah, mysticism, there's a lot to talk about. So I want to begin with probably the most famous Jewish prayer, the Shema. If you're familiar with the Shema prayer, it consists of an open an opening line: Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God; the Lord is one. That's the opening line, and from there it it unfolds into three paragraphs. The first paragraph, the first major paragraph of the Shema begins with the words, You shall love the Lord your God. With all your heart. Well, literally means with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your might. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Now, if you, if you analyze these expressions, you might think that it's just it's being very poetic, right? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your might. But what does that actually mean? Are there three different areas of love, three different expressions of love, or is it the same thing? Love God, and it's just using three, ver- three random you know, adjectives, three random, or three, three random forms of description. So the Talmud says something interesting. The Talmud breaks it down and says, no, these are three different expressions or experiences of love. So loving God, your hearts means the Talmud, and it's levavcha is plural. Libcha would be heart. Levavcha means plural hearts with an S at the end. So the Talmud says, what does bechal levavcha mean? Bishne yitzarecha. With both, bishne, with both of yitzarecha, both of your yitzers. What are the yitzer? Well, yitzers are drives. There's the yitzer. And the Yetzirah Hara. There's the good inclination and the evil inclination. And so the Talmud says, the Talmud immediately drops this like mic drop, this bomb on us and says, you know what it means to love God? When we say in the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your hearts, both sides, the good and the not so good. And now you're asking the question, hold on. I thought love was hard enough, but now you want me to love evil with my evil inclination? Even my Yetzirah should get on board? And this is level one. Oh my God, this isn't. This is like high level one right here. The first mention of love also includes the evil inclination. The answer is yes. What does that mean? I want to share with you an insight or a, a perspective that I think can help. So sometimes we think that in order to love Hashem, to love God, we have to shun physicality altogether. In order to have a spiritual affinity, we have to have a material disdain. Because we might think that they're, that they're polar opposites. It's like a seesaw, right? 
So if one is up, the other one's down. If one is down, the other one's up. It, it's it's inverse. It's inverse proportion. So if I'm loving gashmios, which means physicality, if I'm loving, you know, the physical elements, then I can't love God. And if I love God, then I'm not going to love the physical stuff. So we typically think it's an either or. Comes along the Talmud and says, love God with both your hearts. What does that mean? Even the evil inclination should love God. How is that so? You tell the evil inclination, so what do you love? What do you love? You love, um, we have so many options of what, of what the evil inclination could love, right? Where do we start? Um, don't want to even use money because money is, wealth is what we're talking about today and I want to build up to that. But whatever it is, the evil, the evil inclination wants what's good for it. It's like a selfish inclination, right? The, the good inclination wants what's good for the world, what's good for God. And the, and the evil inclination typically wants, what, wants what's good for itself. You tell the evil inclination, if you really want what's good for you, Hashem, God is also behind that as well. Give you an example. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a great example, but it's an example that comes to mind. Remember the old marshmallow experiment back in the day? I think it was in the 60s um, at Stanford University. They did an experiment where they brought in a bunch of kids. And they gave the they sat the kids down in a room. And the adult in the room said the following. I have, I think it was two marshmallows. I have two marshmallows. I mean, I will give you one now. And I'll give you the second one in, let's say, 10 minutes, something like that. Maybe 10, 15 minutes. Um, but you'll only get the second marshmallow if you don't eat the first one within 10 or 15 minutes. I might be botching the, uh, the marshmallow experiment, but I think it's more or less like this. Basically, a question of self-control. Like, either you could have the one marshmallow and eat it right now, and then you don't get a second one. Or, if you hold off on that first marshmallow, then you get a second marshmallow. Okay, so that was kind of like the, the rules of the game. And they had, you know, they had cameras that filmed all this. And you see kids, like, looking at the marshmallow, like, from different angles. And the kid's waiting, you know, when, it, as you're, when you're a kid. Even a minute seems like an eternity. Sometimes even as an adult also, but like, imagine as a kid, it's like a big percentage of your life. Every minute is like, it's like, I don't know, it's a tenth of my life already. So it's, um, they, they're looking, they're, so some kids, they just pop the marshmallow. It's like, whatever. So I don't get a second marshmallow. Who cares? I got one marshmallow. I'm good. Other kids are like just trying and then, uh, and then they can't resist. Other kids hold out and they get a second marshmallow. What's interesting is that this was really an experiment to kind of, determine, determine whatever, like to kind of analyze the idea of self-control even within younger children. The cool thing is that they followed these kids as they grew up, allegedly. You know, this is what I, what I hear, that they followed the kids into their, you know, into their teens and then college years and then beyond. And they found that typically the individuals that had more self-control as kids, as young kids with this marshmallow experiment, typically fared better in life based on whatever metric they used to determine better. Maybe it was job and career, whatever, whatever metric they used. And the, the listen, none of this, I'm not, I'm not weighing in on, on the approach or the validity of the studies. I'm just saying this. It seems that, that according to the study, there was somewhat of a, of a connection, of a correlation between a person's ability 
to uh, of self-moderation, basically self-control, and their success in various areas of life. And if you think about it, a key to relationships, self-control. A key to doing well in school, self-control. A key to holding a job is self-control. Like there's certain elements where self-control or many areas in life in which self-control is helpful. So I always think about this in a Jewish context. And I think about, you know, Tim and I were talking about Shabbos earlier. Uh, 39 prohibitions of work requires discipline on Shabbat. It requires discipline. So we can assign all sorts of spiritual significance to the mitzvot, whether it's kosher or Shabbat. But you know what a lot of it comes down to? Discipline. A lot of it comes down to discipline, where the Torah says, okay, this is, this is okay, but here's, where we, here's what we shouldn't do. And the obvious question is, well, why not? And there could be a thousand reasons, but to me, in this conversation right now, the most important, I don't know, an important element is, can you, can you hold yourself back? Do you have the ability to say this, yes, this, no? That itself is priceless. That itself is priceless, right? Think about kosher food, kosher food. Does God really care if I eat this or that? First of all, possibly. But, se- <laughs> but second of all, but second of all, even if we don't want to go there, isn't it healthy for me to practice my own self-control when it comes to something as basely physical as eating in, in an arena, in an area, which is the gastronomical experience that otherwise is so not even materialistic, it's so animalistic, right? Eating is such an animalistic drive. Um, it's so raw. It can be so raw. And to be able to create a distinction, a demarcation and say, okay, this, yes, this, no. I always tell my kids, oh, let me finish that sentence. That itself is so helpful for ourselves, right? I'm going to say this. Please don't pull this audio quote out and post it. Forget about God. <laughs> Just think about us. It's so helpful. <laughs> Rabbi Ari said, forget about God. I don't know. No, it's like, forget about God for a second. Just you and me. Isn't it healthy? Every time I take my kids to a baseball game, uh, and I probably should mention world champion Atlanta Braves baseball <laughs> baseball game. So it's like I, we walk through the concessions and there's a lot, of, a lot of options. The kosher options, very, very small. Kosher options in, um, what are they coming out? Not Turner, not SunTrust, Truist. So a kosher option in Truist? I mean, we're talking about, is there even one? Maybe there's one. It's, it's very, it's very, very limited, very limited. I would show my kids, I'm like, man, like if not for kosher, would we even ever stop eating? I mean, you can eat anything. It's like, I can't even imagine what that looks like. Huh? What game? <laughs> what game? Yeah, who's even playing? I don't know. There's there's options, but like the point is, you know, I don't want to. Obviously, this is just one angle in one context, but I think it is a relevant angle in a relevant context, and that is that the laws of Torah, the rules and regulations, allow us to practice self control, which again, as the marshmallow study indicates is helpful across the board. And so let me rewind back to the Shema and to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You tell the Yetzirah, you tell the evil, evil inclination, do you want to be more successful? 
You want to be more successful. You want to be happier, e- not godly soul, evil inclination. I mean, okay, maybe evil is a strong word. Not so good inclination. <laughs> Lotov, not so good, right? You want to you want to be more successful. You want to be you want to be happier. Forget spiritual stuff. You want to be happier yourself. Great. Great. Do I have a program for you? You'll love this. This is good for you also. It's not just good for the spirituality. It's good for the physicality. So this is a little bit of an insight into the first, the first statement of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, even with the lower self, even with the more natural base self. Good. Then we say, with all your soul. And here it's just soul, not souls. With all your soul. What does that mean? So the Talmud says, again, this is not even Kabbalah. This is, this is the Talmud. The Talmud says, means, we should love God even by pain of death, God forbid. In other words, as has happened, unfortunately, throughout Jewish history, that often, too often, too often, Jews were pressured to relinquish their faith, relinquish their belief, and threaten that if they don't do so, they will be, God forbid, executed. And many, many, many Jews throughout history have chosen or have made the choice, have chosen not to give up their identity, their Judaism, but rather to face whatever consequences may come. The Talmud says this is the meaning of loving the Lord your God, with all your soul, even if it costs you your soul, it costs you your life. It means loving Hashem even, even to the point of the ultimate sacrifice, giving up one's life for the sake of God, for the sake of one's beliefs. Parenthetically, the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem, giving up one's life for one's faith in God, is considered to be like the big, obviously, you can imagine, like the biggest and holiest experience. It's not one that we look for. But I'm saying somebody who has that conviction, that, that connection, that conviction, that love of God, that no matter what may come, I'm not giving up, I'm not, I'm not selling out who I am, that's like the ultimate experience. Like the six million who were who were murdered in the Holocaust, Kadoshim, holy, all holy. They were killed because of who they were. They were all killed because of who, who they were. They were Jewish. Um, I should also mention, it's a very interesting teaching from the previous Rebbe on this. He talks about two individuals and he contrasts them. Two great individuals in our tree, Abraham and Rabbi Akiva, both put their lives in line for what they believed in. Abraham famously, well, it's not in the Torah itself, but it's a famous Midrashic and Talmudic teaching. So Abraham discovered God at a very young age. He lived in a time of just, it was paganism and idolatry. Everyone worshipped all sorts of things. His father even, according to our tradition, his father had an idol shop. His father sold idols. Might have been called Idols Are Us. I'm not sure. Anyway, so one day, says the Talmud says, one day his father had to step away from the shop for a minute. I don't know, maybe the truck was coming in with more idols he had to unload. So he puts his son, Abraham, who already had had, had some monotheistic uh, 
curiosities. He puts him in charge of the store. And when he comes back, Abraham's dad, Terach, comes back, and the, all the idols are smashed. The exception of what, like stone idols, or it's hard to smash stone, whatever it was, whatever I, what the idols were made out of, they were all smashed except for one, the biggest one. Abraham's father says to Abraham, what are you doing? You're crazy. Like, sugar, you, you destroyed all the merchandise. Like, what do you do? So Abraham says, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. The, I, there was, yeah, the little idol. There was a lot, you know, a lot of idols in the store. The little idol, the little one, looked very hungry. So I made him or her or it, whatever, a bowl of soup. Well, then the bigger idol said, how dare you feed the little idol before me, the bigger idol. So it started like fighting with the little idol for the soup. And then others joined in to defend the little one. And then others joined in to defend the bigger one. And before you know it, there's this massive brawl. I just picture like, you know, a baseball brawl. Baseball brawls are not really brawls. You ever see that? Like baseball, everyone runs out and they're all like, let's not touch each other, but let's pretend like we're fighting. Anyway, that's just baseball brawls. Hockey brawls are like, the. I mean, that's, they used to be, uh, not anymore. All right. All right. I guess it's good. You know, violence is not the answer and such. But anyway, the point is like, so all the idols were fighting with each other. And Abraham says to his dad, and the biggest one was the only one left. So he got the soup. Abraham's father said, you kidding me? It's like, you expect me to believe that? And Abraham said to his father, and you expect me to believe that any of these idols have any power whatsoever, that I shall worship them? If you yourself know that this is not, like it's completely ludicrous and absurd, so then what are we doing here? That was his way of like, anyway, so Abraham was a guy who liked to push a lot of buttons. He didn't become Abraham for no reason. To the point that the king of the time, Nimrod, I think Nimrod is like a negative uh, expression, I think. But anyway, that's what the king was known then, Nimrod. So to the point that he found out about Abraham as a threat to like this whole, the whole society. Oh, because everyone, Nimrod positioned himself, the king positioned himself as a deity, and they had to serve him. It was a whole thing. Anyway, Abraham was saying how nothing should be served, not stone, not wood, not ceramic, not people, not sun, moon, stars, only this invisible God. So that was very threatening to Nimrod. Nimrod said to Abraham, basically, he, he had him arrested, and he, 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 he told him, you have to recant your position publicly, or else I will throw you into a fiery furnace of doom. And Abraham said, do what you wish. And he threw him into the furnace, and he survived. It was a miracle. There's lots of postscripts to the story. But it's uh, but we'll leave it right. We'll, we'll leave it at that. What in the aftermath, Abram had to bounce out of town, which is how Abraham's journey begins with Lech Lecha, etc. But I digress. That's one story. Second story is Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of the great fast forward like how many years? A thousand plus. Between Abraham, Abraham lived thirty nine hundred years ago, and it. Yeah, probably about 2,000 years. Fast forward 2,000 years. And it's at the time after following the destruction of the second temple. And, the, and, and a few, you know, the Roman, the Roman Empire, they destroyed the second temple. And uh, the Romans didn't like anyone standing up to them. Like, if you let them be in control, they were okay with that. But if you try to, like, push back, that's when they got very upset. There was a few revolts that the Jews try to, you know, 
wage against the, the Romans and the Romans did not take uh, a liking toward that. The Romans then banned public Torah study. They banned teachers from teaching Torah publicly. They banned students from studying Torah publicly. Um, everyone had to go underground to Zoom. It was crazy. So Rabbi Kiva, though, was one of those who, <laughs> secret back channels. So Rabbi Akiva was one of those who publicly taught Torah in defiance of the decree. To the point, the Talmud tells a story that another rabbi asked Rabbi Akiva, what are you doing? You're being reckless. You're being reckless with your own life. Why are you teaching Torah? So he said, let me give you a, an example. He gave him a parable. Listen to this. Unbelievable. 2,000 years ago. Rabbi Akiva said to, his, to this other guy, he said, you know, one, one, once upon a time, there, not once upon a time, um, whatever. One day there was a fish swimming very rapidly in the water. And the fox notices the fish swimming, you know, darting around in the water. The fox says to the fish, what are you doing? And the fish says, I'm swimming away from the fisherman's nets or net. And the fox says, I have an idea. If you're scared of the net, then why don't you jump out of the water and hang out with me? I'll protect you. And the fish says, fox, you kidding me? <laughs> they say that you're smart. Turns out you're not so smart. If I stay in the water, maybe I'll survive. Maybe I'll get caught, but at least I'm in water. If I jump out of the water, I'm for sure a goner. Rabbi Kiva said, if I continue to teach Torah, maybe I'll get caught. Maybe I won't. But at least I'll be in Torah, right? I'll be. But if I quit teaching Torah, if Torah ends right here, then, then, then we're all for sure gone. It's over. Rabbi Kiva was ultimately caught by the Romans. And we read about his story. He was executed. He was brutally tortured and executed by the Romans. What? Yeah. I think they raked his skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's horrific. We recounted twice a year on Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av, the, the tale of the 10 martyrs. The Talmud gives us a little bit more in depth. The Talmud says that at the final moments of his life, Rabbi Akiva recited the Shema. And his students said, even now you're going to say the Shema? Like, how, how is it possible? And he said, all my life, listen to this, all my life, I waited for the opportunity to fulfill the commandment of loving God with all my soul, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And now I have the opportunity. Now it's happening. And I should, he, his final words were almost a rhetorical question or were, he's like, and now that I have, that, I, that I'm living this, this moment, this experience, I shouldn't say the Shema. This is the ultimate. So interestingly enough, the previous Rebbe contrasts Abraham's self-sacrifice with Rabbi Akiva's self-sacrifice. And he says something interesting. He says that there are two different experiences. Rabbi Akiva, based on his own admission, was looking for an opportunity to give his life for God. But Abraham didn't look for that opportunity. Abraham wasn't looking for what we call Messiras Nefesh. 
giving over his life, you know, sacrificing his life, being a martyr for, you know, for God. He didn't look for it. Abraham didn't look for it. Abraham was all about monotheism. If someone was going to get in the way and whatever, fine. But that wasn't his, that wasn't his jam. It wasn't like he was looking for it. Rabbi Akiva on some level was looking for it. So essentially the previous Rabbi says the, the former is a higher level than the latter. Abraham was on a higher level than Rabbi Akiva. Now only a Rebbe could rank, you know, Abraham and Rabbi Akiva. I guess Abraham was a patriarch. Rabbi Akiva was a great Tana, a great sage, but still not level of a patriarch. Rabbi Akiva still had a desire, like, I want to be a martyr, you know, somewhat still about him. Whereas, whereas Abraham was just about God. And whatever it took, it wasn't about him. He wasn't looking for it. If it happened, it happened. Honestly, if it happened, it wouldn't be good. Because then he couldn't continue to teach monotheism. If you think about it this way, right? Abraham actually didn't want to be put in that position because that would mean the end. Rabbi Kiva, it sounds like on some level, saying, well, my whole life I was waiting for this opportunity, which sounds like he almost wanted it as a level in his rank of like having achieved this level, which again, but the point is like this. The Shema talks about three loves. Love one, even the evil inclination, even the other side, quote unquote, should somehow come to loving God. It's a very high level. Next is even higher. Even to the point of death, we should still love God and not sell out. That's huge. So where do you go from there? What's the third? Translation is typically with all your might. What does might mean? Rashi. Rashi. What does mean? I mean, based on the Talmud. What does mean with all your might? It means with all your money. It means with all your wealth. You should love God even with your resources. And all the commentaries wonder. One second. How? Like, we're going higher, higher, but it seems like the third one is much lower. So, again, love one, you're supposed to love God. How should it express itself? Even the evil inclination. Okay? Even pain of death. Wow. Okay, I should really love God, even, even if it's going to cost me my life? Yeah. Okay. And then, even if it's going to cost a few bucks. How is that? How is that the highest? It seems like the easiest. Give out some shekels and we're good to go. Like, love God, even if it's going to cost you some money. Okay. Sages explain the following. This is an unbelievable idea. And, and they, they frame it as some people. But it's interesting. Some people, their money is worth more than their life. That's what Talmud says. Some people, the money is even more precious than their life. So if you tell them that you have to love God even by pain of death, that's one thing. But even if it's going to cost, no, no, even if it's money, right? It actually could be a higher level. Let me explain that and unpack that. And I want to, I want to make this teaching because this is where, we, where I want to get to. This is like a launching point for this conversation today. And I want to make this less radical than it sounds. Again, the commentaries say the highest level of love is with money. In other words, being ready to part with money in spiritual service even higher than giving one's life is giving one's money and that sounds crazy and yet it says the, the, the commentaries say for some money is more precious than life itself and i want to explain how that's not so radical think about how many people how many people are ready to risk their lives to do forms of work People who work jobs that put their lives at risk on a physical level. 
Okay, that's one, that's one element. Another element, people do things that will risk their safety, security, freedom just to earn a few extra bucks, right? Let's talk about like illegal activity, right? Someone is engaging in some, you know, illegal activity, even though it could cost them their freedom and, and, and put a real um, damper on their life. And yet for a few extra bucks, right? Gonna do it. So what does that tell us? It tells us that not, not everyone, obviously, your mileage may vary, but for some, for some, it's a it's an understood thing that money, or not understood, but it's we can we can we can see how money could be more important than even life. It's a radical idea, but it's it's a true idea as well. So this is what the Torah is telling us to love God with all parts of our being, even to the point of sacrificing, giving up our own lives, even to the point of parting with our money. Those are the three levels of love. What, what this leaves us is, or where this leaves us, is with a, with a profound understanding of how precious money can be, how attractive money can be, how use a different word, how seductive money can be to the point that a person might risk their life, either their safety, their security, their, um, their health, their, their freedom, right? For more money for the sake of wealth. It's a very, it's, it's, it's a very seductive thing is money. I, I know I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. I don't remember which, former NFL player, football player, American football player this was. Um, but this was a few years ago. I had listened to an interview with Dan Patrick, who's a sports guy. Sports uh, talk show. Yeah, he's like a personality, a host, whatever, has a radio show. I think he still does. Anyway, so Dan Patrick was interviewing this guy, and this was right around the time when that big um, – that bombshell story broke about um, the brain injuries for NFL players, CTE. They did the medical studies, you know, like that whole concussions and, and all that stuff. It's probably, I don't know, probably now, six, seven, eight years ago, maybe more. I think the story originally broke in Sports Illustrated. I think that was one of the major like breaks on that case, whatever. Anyway, so he was interviewing this former player who was part of a lawsuit. I don't know if he was or wasn't. It was a big lawsuit against the NFL. There's still, still lawsuits going on. But he asked this guy about his own experience with concussions. He talked about his concussions and about his quality of life and how you know he feels that his quality of life has been you know, hampered by his football playing um, experience, his career. And Dan Patrick asked him the following question. I've shared this before in classes. He asked him, based on everything that you know now, based on everything that you experienced now, would you, would you do it again? If you knew then what you know now, would you do it again? He said, yes, I would do it again. I would do it again. And that's it. And that's the way it is. Not everybody, but there are enough people, enough people. And it's not a judgment. It's just reality is we, money is a, money is a, it's a big deal. It, it is a big deal. And, 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 we will, we, I'm saying we people will compromise a lot 
put themselves at risk, literally physically at risk, and put their you know, just risk a lot of things for for the sake of wealth. Which takes me to an, a related area, and that is life work balance, which is a big topic. Now, how do we strike a balance between life and work? You know, we need to work to earn money. At the same time, we need, we need to live also, which gets me to kind of a, I don't know, it's not a philosophical question, but a question. Are we working to live or living to work, right? When we think about life-work balance, what's the ends and what's the means? What's, what's, the, what's the inner, you know, in, in Hasidic terminology or Kabbalistic terminology, you would say, what's the external will What's the what's the the not deepest will and what's the primus What's the deepest form of what, what do we really want? What do we sort of want and what do we really want? In other words, are we working to live? I'm working to get money in order to live. So I want to live. So the objective is to live. But in order to live, I need the resources. So I'm working to get the resources to live. Or Am I living to work? Which means that I'm neglecting the life part of life in order to do more work. And it seems like the, the work itself or the wealth itself is the ends. And it, it's, like I said before, money, wealth, it could be very, um, is, and can be very seductive. And therefore, it's, we all stand at risk of coming to a place where we're, instead of working to live, we're living to work. So the next, it's a lot, it's a, it's a bit of a, a bit of a stretch here in our text, overcoming folly. The next stretch in our text talks about mystical perspectives on work and wealth. And it's really phenomenal. It's really like mind blowing to under, to get a, a deeper perspective on work, on money, wealth, etc. It, it just gives a really revolutionary perspective and throughout the next it's going to be it's going to be a little bit of a stretch throughout the next several weeks we're going to explore topics like where does wealth come from where does it really come from um how do we balance our spiritual belief in god running the show with our practical need to work for a living you know where does the money really come from my my job or god's blessing and and are they compatible and if so how um, what is the nature of the blessing that we're all getting on Rosh Hashanah, on the Jewish New Year? Right? We say that on Rosh Hashanah, God determines the blessings for the year. Okay, Is that set in stone? Can we modify that? If we can't modify it, or if it is set in stone, then what is the role of daily prayer? Seems like we pray every day for sustenance, but if we're already set on Rosh Hashanah, so why are we showing up every day to pray if that's already in the books? so to speak. So these are some of the questions, and I wrote some of them in the email. These are some of the questions that, that come up when thinking about a Jewish, mystical, spiritual perspective on wealth. So I think it's now time to jump in. Um, I hope what I've said so far makes sense. We did a little bit of the Shema, um, explained a few elements, built up to the idea of, of loving God, even with, with, with money, with wealth, explaining how that's a very big area of, of challenge and seductiveness in our lives. And thus, it's important to strike a balance. And now let's understand this spiritually. That's kind of what we did so far. All right, we're up to Discourse 17. 
Let me pause for any questions. Any questions, comments? Yeah. Yeah. You talked about on the football players. There's the LSU specifically did partially so well, but I played football in high school. Part you probably have people would have also done it for less money. That there's something about the beauty of being a gladiator. That if there's something to also I guess add that warrior, that it's not just the money, it's also the yes. like I guess the the yeah. All right. Matt's saying something, something very important. He's saying that um, it could be that the football player who says that, yes, I would do it all over again, even knowing about concussions and CTE and my diminished quality, I would do it again. It may be about the money, but there are also other factors like being a gladiator, being a warrior, like on the field, I would say also, the the fame and the honor not only the money but also the fame maybe the competition maybe the camaraderie being on a team there are definitely other factors you're right i'm i'm over way oversimplifying it and is that does that definition of might also that people talk about i guess other aspects besides just money let's say like the spiritual or right that, that kind of spiritual wealth or is that wealth specifically financial good question so when we talk about wealth, are we also including other areas of material, like physical need, or is it just wealth? Look, in, 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 in our discourse, in the text itself, it's going to focus primarily on money. But we might be able to expand it as we see, like, kind of the core ideas. Let's keep it as an open conversation. Let's see. Let's see. Definitely the, the, the focus here is on, is on work and wealth. Yeah. Okay, any, um, any other questions or comments from the online crew? No, so far so good? Okay, I'm gonna share my screen and uh, pull this up for everybody to reference. Um, it's, in the, it's in the printouts here locally as well and in the books, page 252. And <laughs> the book is called Overcoming Folly. And the objective of the book is to understand uh, things that we do, the things that we do that are not so rational, to understand what it is that we're doing, what, what's motivating the foolish activity, and to try to interrupt that process so that we act in a less foolish manner. So here we launch into the next folly. Discourse 17, chapter 1, by the way, just so you should know, Discourse 17 only has one chapter. So chapter one, but there's only going to be one to this discourse. Okay, foolish businessmen. There are laymen who spend their lives. Um, laymen, I don't, I don't know how that translation, I don't know how I feel about that translation, but laymen in the, in the Hebrew is bale asakim. That means business people. It's not really laymen as much as it is uh, straight up business people. So it says like this, there are business people. Um, who spend their lives in business activities and have no other interests. So he's giving us a he's giving us a scenario. Business people who are just so into business that they really don't have any much other interests. They're not attracted to physical delights, which is a very interesting dynamic that he's saying. He's painting a picture. Somebody who's just dedicated to business, really into in, 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 into the business but are not into other physical desires. Business, in other words, they're not filled with other lusts and other temptations. It's just business. 
business and money. It's all about the money. Um, business activities are of themselves perfectly permissible and are necessary. Now, he qualifies this by saying there's nothing wrong with this. Right? There's nothing wrong with business. It's completely kosher. I mean, assuming that one is not engaged in illegal activities. I mean, there are some business activities that are not kosher, but assuming that it's kosher, it's kosher. There's no, there's no red line over here. So business activities are of themselves, in, other, in and of themselves, uh, uh, perfectly permissible and are necessary. In other words, we need to work. As the Mishnah states, and this is a powerful Mishnah, Torah study should be accompanied by a worldly activity. This is Avot chapter 2. Very important Mishnah. The Mishnah in Avot says, Pirkei Avot is ethics of the fathers. It's the ethical kind of the, it's the life wisdom of the Mishnah. It's not like, okay, what happens if my cow gores and, and, and kills your cow? That's another track day. This is about how to be a mansion, how to live a good life. So it says that someone who studies Torah should also have, should, Torah study should be accompanied by a worldly activity. Maimonides famously comments on this Mishnah that this teaches us that a Torah scholar should always have another vocation, have a day job. And Maimonides proceeds to enumerate all the Talmudic sages who had jobs. This rabbi was a shoemaker. This rabbi was a cobbler. Uh, this rabbi was a blacksmith. This, this rabbi was a this, that, or the other. You know, vocations. They, had, they, they were scholars, but they also had, had a way, a means to make a living. So what he's setting up so far is this idea that doing working for a living is not only kosher, but it's, a, it's necessary. It's an important thing. Nevertheless, and here's where the other shoe drops. Nevertheless, there may be a number of foolish matters connected with business due to the yates or heart, the evil inclination that make man or that makes man unreasonable and keeps him from the knowledge of his creator. In other words, work by itself is kosher. Working and making money, kosher. It's not only kosher, it's advocated in Jewish law. You're supposed to have a job and make money. It's a good thing. However, however, there are, it's possible that it can, it can lean into a negative scenario. It can go into a place that is undesirable, that is considered to be a shtos, a foolishness. And that's because of the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination that tries to stir the pot and tries to get us to, uh, to make all sorts of, negative choices. Well, what does that look like? So he gives an example. I.e., this is one example. The excessive involvement in business. So business involvement itself is kosher. But what about excessive involvement in business? Okay. By day and by night, that prevent one from studying Torah and praying with the congregation and concentrating at the very least on the simple meaning of the words of the prayers. So he's referring to, again, step one here in, in exploring the folly of work and wealth is when work and wealth, when, when work and the pursuit of wealth is pulling away a person or is pulling a person away from their spiritual pursuits. Somebody is working so hard and so many hours that they, that they feel that they can't study Torah. They can't daven with a minion. They can't show up and pray with the congregation. 
even when they are praying, they can't concentrate on the simple meaning of the words of prayers because they're thinking about the next deal or they're thinking about all the work obligations. And this person or these people, they believe that prolonging the prayers by paying attention to the words and by praying with the congregation, in addition to spending time and studying Torah, will entail financial loss for they will be unable to buy and sell during that time. So this is the cheshben. This is the calculation. This is the, the narrative in the mind. The narrative for this business person is like this. I need to work to make a living. Working is kosher. Making a living is kosher. It's all good. In fact, it's desirable. It's a good thing to work and make a living. It's good to earn money. Great. Beautiful. And so I need to, I need to earn a living. And therefore, the person says, I can't study Torah because Torah is going to take away from my time, my ability to work. And I can't go to shul, I can't go to synagogue because it's going to take away from my ability to work. And I can't pay attention to what I'm saying, even if I pray, even when I pray, because if I pay attention, if I pay too much attention, it's going to take me a little bit longer and then I'm going to have less time to work. And then it will entail financial loss because I won't be able to buy and sell during that time. That's a general way of saying I won't be able to work as much as I would like. And he says, this, this is profound foolishness. He calls it shtus. Nifla. Hey, nifla means like a wondrous. It's like a prof. Uh, yeah, profound. It's like it's a huge shtus, foolishness. Why? Seems perfectly reasonable. A person says, look, I need to work X number of hours to earn X number of dollars. If I take off hours dedicated to Torah study and prayer, well, then if I work less, I'm going to earn less money. So then it's not a good, it seems like a very bad deal. So I'm going to minimize my spiritual activities to maximize my work time, maximize my wealth. That seems like the, the approach. He says, no, that's foolish. Why? Let's continue inside. When one carefully considers his experience and what occurs around him, in other words, his own experience and also what's going on around, he will agree that frequently, he will be meticulous about his business procedures, being prompt and energetic about his affairs, and doing a great deal of work, but will profit little or even suffer loss. In other words, it's possible that you put in the hours, you make all the phone calls, you send all the emails, you answer all your clients, and yet you're not making the deals. You're not making the deals. At other times, back inside, at other times, through a minimum of time and effort, you may prosper greatly. And sometimes you make no effort and a deal falls in your lap. Look at that. So then his, his rhetorical question is, how is he so certain then that being delayed by showing up to show, by davening, by studying Torah will be costly for him? How do you know that if you, if you take away, if you take time, sorry, how does a person know that if they invest time in spiritual activities, that it's necessarily going to cost them money. It might, back inside, it might conceivably be wiser for him to occupy himself less, in other words, in business. And with God's help, he will profit more in less time, as we will discuss soon. So already he's dropping some seeds of where he's going to go with this. Like I said, we're going to get into, and it's going to start next week, the really mystical stuff. We're going to get into some of the deepest Kabbalistic ideas talking about Kabbalistic energies that are very obscure, very spiritual, very metaphysical. But it's all going to get back to this core idea, the core idea of where 
is the money actually coming from? Because if you and I think that we create wealth, well, then, then this conversation is not for us. I mean, this is not then the premise of this conversation is that we're being honest and recognizing that sometimes we work hard and it works out. And sometimes we work hard and it doesn't work out. Sometimes we don't work and we fail. Sometimes we don't work and we succeed, which means that as much correlation or causation, <coughs> sorry, as much correlation that there is between our work and, our, and, and the, the money that comes in, there's not, it's not a, a, a true or a perfect causation. It's not like when we work, automatically the money's gonna come in. I wanna add even more. Person could say, no, it's not true. It's not true, I get paid by the hour. Now go argue, I get paid by the hour. If I take off an hour, to, if, I, if I spend one hour in the morning at synagogue and I take away that hour from work, then necessarily I'm losing money because I get paid by the hour. Okay, I wanna throw out an idea that he doesn't mention here yet but I think is relevant. Do you have control over where you're spending your money? Think about it. Do you have control where you spend that money? He says, yes, I'm very budgeted. Really? You and I know this by now, we have no control over where we spend the money. In a second, in a moment, in an instant, something unforeseen could happen. In a blink of an eye, that's it. That's it. I'm not talking about investments going sour. We're talking about unexpected expenses, right? Expenses that you didn't have budgeted for. Suddenly, you have an expense. The point is, there is very little in our control. Or, let's put it this way, there's, there's very much that is out of our control. And so his argument is like this. To do business, to go to work, to kosher. To earn money, kosher. Not only that, recommended by Avot, recommended by ethics of the fathers, but not at the expense of the spiritual experience, not at the expense of studying Torah, not at the expense of praying. And if a person says, I can't, I have no time to study Torah, I have to work, I have to earn a living, I can't go to Shul, I can't go to synagogue, I have to work, I have to make a living. The response is, who told you that you working, only those that, that you going to shul for an hour in the morning or in the, whatever it is, that you taking off, you working one hour less, who told you that's going to hurt your finances? Who told you that? You decided. Decide, okay. It, it comes back to ego. I'm in control. So I know, I know what's best, or I know how this works. And I know that if I work these hours, that I will profit and be successful. And if I work one hour less, it's not going to work out. So this, this paragraph, the second paragraph of Discourse 17 is asking us to be a little bit more humble and to recognize that oftentimes when we work hard, it doesn't pay off. Sometimes we don't work at all and it, and it works out. And I added, sometimes we work hard and we earn money and the money has to be directed to things that we didn't expect that, that happened. Yeah. I don't, I don't need to mention that we, we can all come up with our own scenarios in our lives. I mean, just think about in the last year or two or three or four or five, how many expenses did you have personally, did you have that you didn't account for? Suddenly you had an expense out of nowhere. Life, life. And so how do we know? We can't know, none of us can play God, 
But the point is to say to God, essentially, I don't really have time for you because I got to earn money. Just as we'll see, just doesn't seem like a good idea. Doesn't seem like, or the best strategy. It's like, God, I got this and I need to earn this money and I need to make this work. And yeah, I don't have time for you right now. And, uh, believe that that there's that god runs the show then then maybe we take a different approach all right back inside back inside um again i just want to do that last sentence it's really beautiful it might in the second paragraph it might conceivably be wiser for him to occupy himself less with work and with god's help he will profit more in less time as we will discuss soon let's continue as he furthers the meditation so again, this is advice for the business person, for the, for, the, for the worker. He should be aware of God who gives him the strength to achieve. That's a, a verse from Deuteronomy. God, in other words, the person should be aware that it's God that gives him strength to accomplish. And it is specifically God's blessing that brings wealth. Oh, I didn't even mention this part, the first part. God gives him strength to achieve. Is it possible that one day we won't have the strength to work? Sure, sure. Where's that come from? The point is we're not in control. As much as we want to be in control, we're not in control. That's the reality. We are not in control. It seems profoundly when you really break it down and we're really vulnerable and we're really honest and authentic and recognize how much, how little is actually in our control, it seems foolish to tell God to wait a while while we take care of stuff. It's just not, it doesn't make sense. It's God who gives him the strength to, do, to achieve. And it is specifically God's blessing that brings wealth. The occupation per se is a matter of making a receptacle for the blessing. And this is going to be a key idea. The job is a keli, a vessel. It's a receptacle for the blessing. But the critical factor is the blessing from God. In other words, there's two elements. There's the blessing and the container. The work that we do creates a container for the blessing, but where does the blessing come from? That comes from God. Already at the beginning of this conversation, without using a lot, without using much mystical, Kabbalistic terminology, he's giving us a Jewish perspective on the blessing of wealth. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing from God. It's a blessing from the divine that to give us wealth, to give us the, the resources that we need. The work that we do is the vessel that we create to contain that blessing. It's kind of like, and we've talked about this many times, God wants to give us the blessing, the physical blessings, but he says, look, give me a way to get it to you, right? Give me an alibi because I don't want to have to wire it directly because then your bookkeeper is going to wonder, what's this wire that came in from God Inc.? Like, who, who is that? Who is that? So you have to have like an alibi. You have to go to work and then earn money and then you can get your bonuses that way, right? You get your... You get your divine blessings through the medium of work, but that's the vessel. That's not really the core of the blessing. The critical factor is the blessing from God. Thus, he ought to, he ought to be devoted mainly to God who, top of 254, maintains and sustains it and must only fashion the instrument for his blessing, namely his business. So again, the primary focus should be on the blessing. The secondary focus is on the vessel, the instrument to channel the blessing, <coughs> which is the business. 
But he says minimal involvement in his work will also suffice. And minimal involvement, okay, let's just be, let's just be very um, clear here. <coughs> He's not saying show up to the office, you know, an hour a day and, you know, roll the dice. And hopefully it'll work out. Don't be reckless, right? It's not, the advice here is not be reckless and because God's in control. That's not really making, a, that's not making a good faith vessel. To make a vessel for God means you're making a vessel. It's like, you know, the vessel, I always think about a cup. I have a cup, yeah? If the cup has holes in it, it's not gonna, it's gonna be a mess. It's gonna be a wreck, right? The, the vessel has to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It has to be um, cohesive. Whatever it has to be a good, it has to be a solid vessel. You need a solid vessel, but don't forget the main thing is not the vessel. I can have a beautiful cup, but if I don't have anything to put in it, then uh, <clears throat> the, when I'm coughing, I don't have anything to drink. So yeah, we need the source. We need the we need the the influx of stuff, and then the cup is going to contain. So you need we need to work. We need to go to work. We're not taking away anything from that, but at the same time. To compromise the blessing for the vessel makes no sense. To say, I have no, God, with all due respect, I have no time for you because I'm busy crafting this gorgeous vessel. God's like, so you, you don't want the blessing? You just want the vessel? Got to get priorities. First, first things first, we have to channel the blessing and then create a vessel. And there's no doubt, there is no doubt that the bigger the vessel, the more it can contain. So theoretically, the more hours, the more work we put in, the bigger the vessel, the broader the vessel, the deeper the vessel, the more it can contain. Sure, but we still have to be able to draw it from the source. We still have to have the connection to pull it in. It's almost like, I don't know why I got a visual of fishing. Maybe we talking about fishing before with the, with the Rabbi Kiva fish story. But like, imagine you're on a fish. You're on a fish. I'll be weird. Imagine you're on a boat, right? And you're fishing. So you need to cast the line. Yeah, I think I'm fishing that often, but like you cast the line and uh, yeah, or the reel, what is it? The reel, the line, whatever. And then you, you, you reel it in, there you go. You reel it in, good, excellent. You reel it in, great. And then you need to, you, you pull it onto your boat. Imagine you have a tiny boat and a massive fish. It's not gonna work. It's gonna topple over your boat. The boat's going to sink and no one's going to be happy. So if it's too big for the vessel, for the ship, it's not going to work. So you need to find the, but imagine you had a big ship. Great. Then you can, can, then you can catch a big fish theoretically, but you know what you need? Don't just need the boat. You need to be able to reel it in. That's where the spirituality comes in. It's about reeling in the blessings. So the work is the vessel. It's not the blessing. The work is the, is the vessel. The blessing is originating by God, and that's where the spiritual activity comes in. So for a person to say, God, I have no time for you for prayer. I have no time for you for Torah study because I have to go to work to earn a living. And that's supposed to, I'm supposed to earn a living, right? Sure. So I have no time for the spiritual stuff. I have to focus on the physical stuff. That's not a sustainable model. I mean, it might work for a little bit, but it's not sustained. Ultimately, it's not sustainable because we're neglecting the source of the blessing and only focusing on the vessel, and that's just not a, it's not a sustainable model. Um, and again, even if short term, it might seem like it's paying off, it's not a long term. It's not like they say in Yiddish, it's not a plan. I'm kidding, don't say in Yiddish, but it's not. Uh, yeah, it's just not. It's not a plan.
And now, so he just dropped at the beginning of Discourse 17, he just, we just dropped like the big idea. The big idea is that work is important, but there's this profound shtus, this profound folly that exists in the realm of work. And that is working in a way that compromises our spiritual connection. And that he says is going way too far. Okay. Um, good. Let's get back inside to explain. And by the way, this is not going to explain anything, but what he means is what he means is let's now take this idea, put it on the shelf for a moment and get back to explain. It is written. God will bless you in all that you do. The Hebrew is uh, yeah, the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So he now asks the question we may ask, why bother working? Whoops, what's going on here with my thing? Why bother working at all? Since the blessing flows from God, it can come without mortal effort. So now he's asking the other question, right? The other question is, one second, if the blessing really comes from God, right? God will bless you. So then why is it in all that you do? Well, it, the Torah says, God will bless you in all that you do. Why do I need to do? Why not just God bless me? But from the Torah's words and all that you do, it seems that man's work is work and effort are necessary. So question number one. So again, we made all these statements before, but now he's just breaking it down and asking it as a question. Okay. So we have two elements. We have God's blessing and our work. So one could ask, if God is if God is really the source of blessing, so then why do we need to work altogether? Let's just sit back and get the blessing. God wants to bless us, so then great, we have so much extra time. Actually, we didn't have to go to work; we just got God's blessing. It'd be amazing. So why why is it that we have to do? The Torah clearly mandates both. God will bless you. The blessing is from God, and in all that you do, that you have to work. But why? Why? That's question number one. In addition. Second question. In addition, it is not understood. For our sages say in the Talmud in Beitza, 16a, man's entire sustenance is determined for the year. Man's entire sustenance is determined between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. These are the Jewish high holidays. And our tradition tells us that the entire, um, in Hebrew, it's, hold on, Mizonosav. Food, but it means sustenance, not only food. That the entire sustenance, the annual sustenance of a person that is determined, it is delegated, it is designated between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In that case, he asks, in that case, why must anyone busy himself with business or trade to sustain himself? So then why go to work? If God already determined on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, how much money we're going to make? So then why go to work? Definitely. The sustenance determined for him by God's grace be granted him. So why must he toil? That's the second question. So we have all these questions about work, how to balance our faith and our work. How do we balance the spiritual and the pragmatic? On the one hand, we know that it's God's blessing that, get, that makes us wealthy, that gives us our sustenance. On the other hand, we say, God will bless you in all that you do. Well, why do we have to do it if it's, God, if it's God's blessing? Furthermore, it's, I'm just going through the questions. That was question one. Furthermore, question two, it says that our parnasa for the year, our sustenance for the year, 
is allocated already Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time. So then why show up to work the rest of the year? Tell your boss, I quit. Done. Finished. On vacation. Huh? Yeah, I'm working for God. Exactly. Yeah. God's are, yeah, I already got this. I got this in the bag. I, I prayed hard. I fasted hard. Right? I did all the things I needed to do. I checked the checklist. Please, God, I got the blessings for the year. I'm done. I don't need to go to work. But we know that's not the case. The question is why? Furthermore, third question. Furthermore, we need to understand the words of our sages in Rosh Hashanah 16a, again from the Talmud. There's another opinion, Rabbi Yose, who says that man is judged every day. Not just once a year, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but every day there is another judgment. How can this be? So third question is, how can this be reconciled with the earlier citation that man's sustenance is determined between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? In other words, is it once a year or every day? Which one is it? Is, are our, is our wealth and our sustenance allocated once a year? Or is it a judgment that happens every single day? How do they, how do they um, coincide? Rabbi Yose, back inside, who said that man is judged every day, will no doubt agree that the determination of man's needs, children, life, sustenance, is on Rosh Hashanah. So what does he mean by the daily judgment? It, there's one there's actually multiple opinions about the judgment. Rabbi Yossi says every day. But in this text, he argues, the Rebbe Rashab, the author of this text, argues that Rabbi Yossi says every day does not disagree with the sages who say that there's a judgment that happens in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. That was Rabbi Yossi, when he showed up to synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, was he not praying for a good year? Of course he was. Did he not dip his apples in honey and say, have a happy, sweet new year? Of course he did. Right? So what does it mean if there's an annual allocation so then, or an annual judgment, so then what's happening every day? It seems uh, redundant. So what is meant by the daily judgment? That's question number three. Question number four. In addition to all of this, we need to understand our daily requests in the Amida for health and prosperity. Every single day in our prayers, in the Amida prayer, we dive in, we pray for health, there's a prayer, Rifa'enu Hashem, B'nei Rafa'en. Heal us, God, so that we may be healed. Rafa'en, Chole, Amma Yisrael. We say that God is the healer of his people. We say God is a healer. We ask God for healing. We pray for healing, number one. And then the next blessing is, is, um, is the blessing of Barech Aleinu. Barech Aleinu is... Give us sustenance. So first we ask for healing, and then we ask for sustenance, prosperity. Every single day, not only every day, three times a day. We have three amidas a day. So the question now is, question four, isn't this already determined between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Right? On Rosh Hashanah, we stand there and we say, Rosh Hashanah, God determines, Yom Kippur, it's sealed. Who will be born? Who will die? Who will be this? Who will be that? All the judgment is passed. So then what are we doing every day? Asking God for health and prosperity. <coughs> it seems redundant. It seems unnecessary. Question five. It is stated in the Zohar that the venerable Rabbi Yeva prayed daily before his meal that he be provided with food, although his food, although his food was on the table before him. Listen to this. He had, he had a, a meal in front of him and said, please, God, give me my food. Everyone's like, 
bro, it's right there. <laughs> it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You, are you asking for more? Because we got, we can bring out more. It's like, please, God, I'm hungry. I want food. It's like, okay, but you literally already have your food. So what does it mean? Though, and here's the quote from the Zohar. Though he already had food, he would not prepare it until he'd ask for it from the house of the king in prayer. He would pray for the food that he already had. So the question number, question number five is, what is the meaning of this prayer? What is the meaning of this prayer to pray when you already have what you're praying for? I want to quickly recap the five questions. It's almost like Passover, but we have an extra question now. Those are the four questions. Here, here are the five questions. And it's all the same question. If you think about it, it's all the same question. It all comes back down to the same core thing, which is how do we balance our efforts with our faith in God? What is the, you know, we talk about life work balance. What is the self God balance when it comes to work and wealth? So question number one, just to recap the five questions. Question number one was, why do we have to work if it's God's blessing? Now we know we have to, the Torah says, God will bless you in all that you do, which implies that we have to do something. All right, darn, why? I mean, no, the question, though, is why? If God is blessing us, then why work? And we already, I mean, we already spoke to the answer a little bit about creating a vessel, but he's asking the question to lead into the discussion. So question one, why work if it's divine blessing? Question two, if, if Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time, if that once a year judgment already allocates our blessings, so then why work the rest of the year? Question number three. How do we reconcile the annual judgment and allocation with Rabbi Yossi's opinion that says that there's a judgment that happens every single day? Is it annual or is it daily? Question number four. Why are we asking every day for health and prosperity in the Amida if, again, it was already determined on an annual basis, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, as far as how we're going to be healthy and uh, uh, in a health level and, and, and prosperity level? Question five is what was Rabbi Yeva's deal with praying for the food that was already on his table. Um, he already had the food. He was praying for the food. What, what, is, what exactly does that mean? All right. Makes sense so far? Yes? Okay. Let me just check in. Question? Yeah. Which one? I'll tell you what the what the original quote is. It sounds like he wouldn't prepare it. Does that mean cook it or does that mean um, like put it in a plate? It's possible. When I said it was already in a plate in front of him, I was being a little bit uh, over overly dramatic. It sounds like he had the food. He had the food. But on some level, it wasn't like he wasn't actually it wasn't like, you know, it was the food was there, but it wasn't fully, you know, it wasn't finished being prepared. But still, it's still a question. Okay. All you have to do is prepare it. It's already there. And yet you're not going to touch it until you ask of it from Hashem. Well, like, what's the... saying that prepared is more abstract, metaphysical. Like that kind of makes more sense. I think I was thinking really literally on prepare versus I guess expanding a definition that might make more sense. That's something you're saying that prepare might be more of a mystical idea or a metaphysical it's idea of preparing the food. Right. Like. Right. Okay, good. 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 Um, any other questions? 
questions, questions, questions before we jump in. We're going to do a little bit more. Usually we do one chapter. We're going to, we're going to go into the next chapter a little bit just to get a taste of the Kabbalah that is going to, um, to come in. Okay? This is Discourse 18. All right? We are going to go straight into Discourse 18. I'm going to share my screen. And let's pick it up. Okay, here we go. Three categories. Discourse 18, Chapter 1. Let us understand the apparent contradictory sayings regarding man's sustenance and needs that on one occasion our sages said man's entire sustenance is determined between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and on another they said man is judged every day, and that Rabbi Abed prayed daily for his food, as the Zohar states that although he already had food, he was not prepared until he had asked, it, asked for it from the house of the king in prayer. Which means that in short, there are three categories. This is very important. He breaks it down for us. There are three categories. There's the general determination of one's sustenance and needs made in Rosh Hashanah. Number two, there's the daily judgment. And number three, even when the food is provided, he does not make use of it until asking for it from the king's house in prayer. So there's three levels. Each one gets a little bit um, more specific. So there's the general annual determination of blessing. There's the daily determination of blessing. And then there's the immediate prayer for the sustenance, even when it's already there. And to understand the need of all three checkpoints. In other words, I need to show up in Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur to pray for my annual allocation. Then I need to pray every day for my daily allocation. And then I need to pray right before I eat for my immediate allocation. Why the need for all three? Maybe just a general allocation or maybe just a specific allocation. Why all three? Understand this. We need to understand the process of how. And this is really going to take us into the conversation that will really blossom beginning next week. This will take us into a conversation about how blessing, how spiritual blessing. Let me say that again. How blessing unfolds from the spiritual realms and it becomes manifest in the physical reality. The idea here is that it's, that it's a process that unfolds. The energy begins in a very metaphysical way. And then it evolves or devolves to take on very physical shape and form. So all blessings, whether it's blessings of health, whether it's blessings of family, you know, family-related blessings, or whether it's blessings of sustenance, food and, and money, all three categories, these are three, three major categories, a blessing, all three categories, all the blessing begins in a very metaphysical space. It begins with God, a spiritual blessing, and then it unfolds, and then it becomes manifest slowly, slowly as a physical blessing and as a particular physical blessing. And this is going to be the journey that we kind of unravel or uncover as we go through the text. It's like, how does... What is that first stirring of blessing? How do we initially pull that metaphysical blessing from the source? And then how do we help shape that blessing into the type of blessing that we specifically want? And that is where the different checkpoints come in. There's the general allocation, Rosh Hashanah, the daily allocation, and then the very specific allocation or prayer for that allocation that happens immediately before we partake of any of the physical blessings in our reality. 
So there's these different stages, three generally different stages that speak to the different levels, the different stages of allocation, all going back to the core idea. The blessings begin with God. The blessings originate as spiritual energy. And then we want them to be manifest in our reality. I'm going to share with you a story that comes up a little bit later, but I, I want to end with this story because it, it, it speaks to what we're touching on right now. <clears throat> the three blessings that I mentioned a moment ago, three categories of blessing. It was also mentioned in our text, health, family, and sustenance. Those are the three pillars of blessings. It's like uh, a stool, right? It's like, a, it's like a chair that has three legs, right? One leg of, of health, one leg of family, and one leg of, of sustenance, money, food, et cetera, money. Those are the, those are the three legs, the three pillars of, um, of, of blessings. But the reality is that not everyone has all three. Not everyone has, has all three. The story is told, and I'm going to say this in, in brief because, again, it does appear in our text a little bit later. The story is told about a, a, a couple that comes to the Baal Shem Tov asking for a blessing for children. Baal Shem Tov told the couple, I'm sorry, I cannot bless you with children. It's not, it's, not in the, it's not in the cards. It's not meant to be. They were devastated. They came back. He told them, no, I'm sorry. I can't help you. They came back again and again and again. Finally, he told them, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Right now, you have two, two blessings that are flowing. Two, two legs that are, that are robust of this three-legged, you know, blessing uh, reality. Two out of three. You have good health and you, you have prosperity. If you're willing to trade in one of them, then we can redirect it to, to the area of, of children and family. And they made that choice. They made that choice. And they became impoverished and they had children. And however the story ends, it ends. But the point is that there's that the blessing that flows, it flows in mysterious ways. And this is not explaining, this is not an answer to why. This is not answering the question of, you know, why not all three? Halavai all three, should be all three. But why not all three? Now we're asking God questions. And the God questions we can't answer. But the Baal Shem Tov was able to see that for whatever reason, this couple was only in the, in the cards for them was only two out of three. So he told them, look, I can't give you this third blessing. When they pressed, he said, look, if you want to relinquish one of the two that you already have and switch it out, then maybe we can make a plan. And that's indeed what happened. The point here is that there's different types of blessing. There's the pure blessing that's unformed, unformatted. And then there's the blessing as it takes on formatting. There's the pure energy. And then there is as the energy assumes a form in a particular leg, so to speak, whether it's health, whether it's family, or whether it is prosperity. The message for us is, just going back to what we, this is all a teaser for what we're about to get into. We're about to get into a very deep, mystical conversation about Malchus and Zah and Atsilus and realms and Sfirot and energies 
That's going to start next week. But very simply today, we established something that is very important, even if we haven't fully explained it. We established something and then we asked the questions, which is a very unique way of doing it. We almost gave the answer and the perspective and then said, all right, now let's break it down with a bunch of questions and we'll get to the answers that it's going to come back. What we establish is there's a, there's a big temptation when it comes to work. The chat, there's a temptation, a challenge. There is a the big challenge and temptation is to believe that we are God, that we are creating the wealth. Right? We created the wealth. We created the blessing, we created the wealth. That's the challenge. The solution, not the solution, the truth is God's behind it. And that will re, that will automatically necessarily manifest itself in how we work. In other words, the why affects the how. What's the why? Why do we work? Is it to create wealth or to help that blessing take form? If it's to create wealth, then I need to work at all costs at all times. If it's to channel the divine blessing, then it's a different experience. Then I'm not going to compromise the divine part to, I'm not going to compromise the source if, if you know, in the process of trying to get what it is that I want. I will never do that if, if, that's, if that's at the core. So my why, why I work, will determine the how and the what. There's a great TED Talk from Simon Sinek about always know your why. What's the why? Based on the why, that, that, that reshapes everything. If I'm working to create wealth out of nowhere, well, then I have no time to dab. I have no time to study Torah. I got, I got, I got to work. Got to work. But if I'm working not to create the wealth, God creates the wealth. If I'm working to, to help move the, move the blessing of God toward me, well, then I'm not going to forget about God. That would be silly. Of course I'm going to dab. Of course I'm going to study Torah. Of course. Of course I'm going to stay plugged into the source because that's where it's coming from. Even as I work hard, the channel it where it needs to go. Anyway, this is the perspective that we started establishing. We asked a bunch of questions. We're going to get very mystical next week and the weeks to follow and come back to this idea about the dual role of work. But this is certainly an area in which there's a lot of folly that can creep in. So we have to be very careful not to get carried away with ourselves in this process. All right. I want to wish everybody a Shavuot Tov, a good week. May all of our work be healthy and balanced between our efforts and the divine Let's always give time and give space for the blessings of God to materialize. Linda, thank you very much for the birthday wishes. Yes, it is my English birthday today, February 20th. Wow, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Appreciate that. So indeed, it should be a year of blessing for all of us. The main thing is not to forget the source. Always to remember where the blessings are really coming from. All right. Thank you for the beautiful class. You were so inspiring. I understand. You, it's your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mariana. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I appreciate All that. All the blessing. Thank you. Uh, Yaakov, you had a question? Yeah, real quick. Um, just more into the details of how, how the you know, money flows. So if we, if we don't work, obviously we can't get even what's supposed to come to us if we don't work, and that is our choice. So then we're lazy, uh, we're not being a partner with God, etc. What about just if we make mistakes or if we don't take opportunities, for example, uh, 
oh, somebody told us 10 years ago to buy a house. It would be a good time to buy a house. But we didn't we weren't didn't feel like it would be advisable, whatever. We didn't feel like we could afford it. And now it's like kicking ourselves. So, you know, what about that type of thing? Maybe missed opportunities or or not enough knowledge to make you know, the proper financial decision or, or something like that. I mean, is that all in the cards? Is that all part of, you know, every nuance is under God's control? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think looking back and kicking ourselves, uh, it's not so productive. What's productive is if I say to myself, you know what, I missed that 10 years ago, I missed an opportunity to invest in something, but now, should about Bitcoin or whatever it is, right? whatever. Right? But now I realize that I have more <laughs> yeah. opportunities now. So I'll take the opportunities. But just as they say in Hebrew, stamp to kick yourself or ourselves. Nah, that's not that's not a there's no point. Just just to just to, you know, there's not that's not that there's no utility in that. If we're learning from it, if if right now we're going to make a move and I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. But if now we're going to make a um, you know, make a move because of, you know, that's because of, of lessons from the past, then it's a product, productive thing. But just to kick ourselves now, you're, but I understand your question. The question is, if we didn't invest and we didn't earn that money because we didn't do the investment, does that mean that it wasn't designated for us? Perhaps or perhaps it was and we and we missed out on it, because, again, as we'll see, as this as the story unfolds, there could be spiritual blessings that were allocated. But we also have to do the work to bring it down. So could it be that there was blessing allocated that we that we didn't tap into? Yes, it's possible. It's possible. Does it? But we have to be, you know, we have to be balanced about it. And we'll never know. I mean, because we we're not we we don't see that side of the divide. We have to take the opportunities. We have to be cautious and also be bold. We have to have that balance. The main thing, though, in this context, is not to forget about the source. Not to think that it's only about my business decisions. It's only about the work, the, the hours that I put in and forget about the spiritual stuff. And the spiritual stuff is prayer and Torah study. And he didn't say it today, but I would add also tzedakah, the idea of utilizing what we've, what we've received, the blessings to further God's plan in the world. All of that speaks to the spiritual activities that surround the work experience that help, that help pull it. Um, I saw something in the chat. One second. Dedicated physician. Okay, nice. Great. Well, I hope that sort of answered the question. Um, it is great to see everyone, Yaakov and David and Donna and Joy and Mariana and Michael and Darren and Richard and Tobin and Henri uh, Henriette and Linda and Richard. It is great to see you all as well as your in-person crew. Good to see you guys. All right. Have a wonderful, have a wonderful week, Shavuot Tov. Don't forget, today at 6 p.m., this is the playbook for Judaism, the soundtrack, a musical experience for the ages. Starts at 6, dinner at 6, 6.30 is the performance and the experience. Um, tomorrow night, after the fire, we have a Zoom event with Marika Feuerstein. She talks about her family story, what happened after the fire. That is a Zoom event tomorrow night starting at 8 p.m. Check the website for more fun activities. All right. We'll see you all. Have a wonderful day. Take care, everyone.